Welcome to the Lasallian Way Online, a digital series produced by Christian Brothers University's Center for Digital Instruction in Memphis, Tennessee. In each episode, we focus on topics in online education and approach them from the Lasallian tradition. St. John Baptist de Lasalle created a culture of student-centered teaching and learning focused on transforming the whole person. We aspire to follow the Lasallian way online. Good day to you. Welcome to another edition of the Lasallian Way Online. I am your host, Dr. Dale Hale, and I am the director of Christian Brothers University Center for Digital Instruction and the Dean of the Global College. So thank you for joining us today. For those of you that are in academia, you will probably be familiar with the term called FERPA. This word alone can either bring great frustration or even at times a little bit of fear that's caused by the mystique that comes from not really understanding what FERPA is all about. FERPA is the acronym that we use for the Federal Education Rights and Privacy Act. It covers students' rights to what is disclosed to others. Many times it can get a little confusing as to what we can and cannot do, especially when it comes to online learning. But FERPA covers all areas of academia, not just online. It covers the online as well as the traditional student. I recently sat down with Scott Summers, the Registrar of Christian Brothers University and the Officer for Christian Brothers for FERPA. We wanted to talk about FERPA and how we as an institution can best avoid breaking the law. In this interview, we may have made some internal references to some of our applications like Banner or Canvas or something like that, but the information he shares is universally applicable. Here's that interview from a few months ago. I really hope you enjoy it. Hello, everybody. I'm Dale Hale. I'm the director of Christian Brothers University Center for Digital Instruction. Joining me today is Scott Summers. Scott, would you introduce yourself to us, please? Uh, like Dale said, my name's Scott Summers, and I'm the registrar here at CBU, and I've been here for about four years now. Good. Uh, you're about a year longer than I've been. Well, actually, almost two years. Yeah. Well, it's good to have you uh, this morning, oh, today. Um, Scott, you carry with you a, a particular, I don't know if it's called an officer or um, enforcer, uh, but in particular, we're talking about FERPA. What is it? Officer? Is that the correct terminology? Um, there, there's one person essentially that's designated the FERPA lead at each institution. Traditionally, it is the registrar, um, him or herself. Okay, great. So tell me, what is FERPA? FERPA stands for Federal Educational Rights and Privacy Act, and it was um, proposed by Senator Buckley. It's also known as the Buckley Amendment. And it was signed into law by President Ford in 1974. 
And at the time, there was essentially no legal framework around student records whatsoever. Who owned them? What could be disclosed? So it was an opportunity to give some legal um, regulations, requirements, and guidance in regards to student records. Okay, so it's about protecting the 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 information of the student. It does it does a couple things. There's really two parts. One is it provides um, privacy. There's a privacy component to FERPA. And then there's also a rights section associated with FERPA. And rights are things like the student can inspect uh, and review their educational record. Um, they can request corrections if there's something that's not correct in those records. Um, it gives them the right to file a complaint with the Department of Education as well. So that's the rights portion. And then the privacy portion is basically controls the disclosure of certain parts of a student record. So correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but I, I believe I remember hearing that a student has the right to say what, what is released about them, what information is available to others. There's, there's what's called directory information, and that's uh, a certain set of um, uh, a certain aspect of a student's record. And then there's what's called non-directory information, um, things like grades, test scores, student schedules, disciplinary records. Um, non-directory information cannot be disclosed um, under, but under certain set of circumstances. And who who gives that permission for that kind of information to be disclosed? The student. The student does. So that's all in the student's control. The student controls non-directory information. Um, so they get to decide who, they're the ones who describe, uh, gets to uh, determine what information is released about them and, and to whom. So a student can choose to um, do a FERPA release for maybe their, their parent, their guardian, um, grandparent, whatever it may be. They can choose to do that, and that's available via BannerWeb um, so that we know that. But um, uh, they have the right to determine what aspects of non-directory information is disclosed. Okay. All right. So now, before we move on, yeah. one other component of that is called legitimate educational interest. So um, somebody who, let's say it's a, uh, uh, a political science course. And so obviously the instructor has knowledge of non-directory information associated with that course. Now, there's also other people that would have what's called legitimate educational interest, and that may be the chair of the department, the academic advisor, it may be the dean of the school, it could be the registrar's office. So it, it, there's also a carve out for what's called legitimate educational interest. Okay. All right. Okay. So. Tell me what it means to have a FERPA violation. What is a FERPA violation? 
So a FERPA violation is any non-directory information. Again, um, my quick list here, grades, test scores, ID numbers, um, financial records, class schedule, that kind of information. Um, any of that information is released that's not consistent with the students um, choosing to release that, that's a FERPA violation. Okay. And so if a if a if there is a FERPA violation, who needs to know about that? Um, I, I need to know about it um, uh, as soon as it's known. And then basically we have a um, kind of a, a checklist that we go through um, to determine um, exactly what information was released that should not have been released, um, where it went to. So looking at the severity and scope of the violation. And then uh, once that's determined, it, 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 it kind of gives us that information we need to know what do we do next. Okay. Um, so take me through a, a possible scenario. Well, first of all, have, have you known of any institutions who have violated FERPA and then gotten in trouble and by whom and what what kind of trouble did they get into? Well, basically, um, uh, the worst possible thing an institution can do is have a, a, a known FERPA violation and to not report it to um, the appropriate people, the Department of Education. So we're better off if we have a, a violation that's fairly, the scope's fairly broad and it's a fairly, fairly serious violation, we need to report it. Um, and who do you report that to? It goes to the Department of Education, and then it can go also to um, the, the federal aid side, uh, federal financial aid, depending on what non-directory information was uh, disclosed inappropriately. So it depends. Okay. Um, generally speaking, what happens is when there's a, a violation reported, They'll want to know, again, like I said, um, what information wa was released, um, who did it go to, um, and then they're, they're also, the next step is, okay, well, what's the remedy? Or what in your procedures allowed this to happen? Because, uh, so for instance, um, if somebody has a, uh, a, a, let's say they're just emailing information out, and they inadvertently put an email address that they shouldn't have put in there. Mm -hmm. They're gonna say, okay, that's obviously a flawed uh, procedure. So they're gonna say, okay, you need to basically revise that procedure and to, to, so that this situation doesn't happen again. So just as much as they're interested in the violation, they want to know how are you gonna prevent this from happening again. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, okay. A second ago there, you mentioned another connection that I, I don't think, I don't think I got originally, and that is that there's, there's some connection between FERPA and financial aid. Is that right? Well, they're often, yeah, I mean, you have financial records and financial aid records are protected as non-directory information under FERPA. So 
it can, depending on the violation, it can involve the financial aid side, which is part of the Department of Education, but it's also a separate reporting uh, that you need to do. Okay. Okay. If an institution gets um, uh, funding for students from the government, does FERPA come into play with that as well? Yes. Yeah, so that's something I probably should have mentioned at the very beginning, is that all institutions that accept federal financial aid monies or federal monies in any form can be grants, um, whatever it may be for faculty, um, they are subject to FERPA. Uh -huh. Okay. So, so just uh, because you're a private institution doesn't mean you're exempt from FERPA. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. If your yeah. students get federal loans, you participate, participate in the federal financial aid um, program, you're subject to FERPA. Got it. Okay. So it's it's a pretty serious thing, or could be a, a pretty serious thing, if we have, um, well, obviously a serious FERPA violation. Correct. Okay. All right. So we got to be careful about what we do with, with student information, how much we share, what we share. Um, so what happens if, well, it, what happens if I'm a faculty member and I accidentally share information about a student? What what should I do? That I, I shared it with another group of students or or something like that. What should I do about that? I think the first thing to do is to notify me and, and give me exactly all the information that you have um, so that, again, I can assess the severity of, of the violation. Sometimes it's it may not be a violation, but if there's any doubt, um, I should be notified so I can, can look into it. Um, kind of a general rule, and this is a very basic rule, is that I I tell faculty staff only release only give information non-directory information directly to that student. Yeah, yeah, it's good safety Period. precaution. Yeah. Period. yeah. Um, and if there's any doubt, if this could be a FERPA violation or can I do this, um, they need to contact the registrar's office. Uh, okay, so that that also goes. Um, in our business, a lot of times students will request uh, recommendations from faculty, mm -hmm. employment, uh, different things like that. Mm -hmm. Is FERPA uh, something that has to be involved in that? Yes. Um, letters of recommendation are subject to FERPA as well. So if, you're, if you've been asked to write a letter of recommendation, a student says, would you write me a letter of recommendation for this internship or this position or whatever it may be, keep in mind that you can't release their GPA, anything like that without the student specifically writing and putting it in writing and saying you can release this information. So there, there's no implied consent. No. The student uh -huh. has to directly indicate that academic information, grades, test score, whatever it's going to be, mm -hmm. can be released, and the student needs to put it in writing. Okay. Because it's just natural as a faculty to say, this student took 
you know, four or five of my classes and got A's in all of them. And that's a FERPA violation unless the student specifically says, yeah, you can you can release my grade information in the letter. So would it be wise for faculty then to ask the student, do you want me to to share this information with on this recommendation? Yeah, absolutely. OK. All right. So if if we're talking about concerns for for students, so let's say I have a student in my class, and this will be more pronounced with online learning than it is in just the traditional setting. Although I'm I'm guessing that even in traditional setting, uh, walking down the hall with a fellow faculty member, this same information is should not be shared, or or maybe can be. That's the question. What kind of information can I share about a specific student with another faculty member who may have that student in their class? Um, you know, if there's some sort of, uh, whether it's um, an attendance issue or a grade issue, um, whatever it may be, um, if you know a faculty member that has that student or knows that student or is their advisor, you know, again, it goes back to um, legitimate educational interest and the faculty member can say hey I, I have this student in my class and I, you know I have concerns regarding X Y or Z and um, again if that other faculty member has a legitimate educational interest then that's okay to share that information it's okay to share that information with the chair or the dean or whatever it may be, um, again, because there's that it's called, you know, an educational need to know or, or educational interest. So so shared um, classes would be a, an educational interest then. So student A is in class A and class B. Two different faculty, they can share that information between them. That's correct. Okay. All right. Uh, but again, you want to make sure that it's done and not necessarily done in very specific ways. Um, you know, just discussing things in, in more general terms. But again, generally speaking, there is that there, a legitimate educational uh, interest in sharing that information. So there's a reason to share it that would benefit the faculty member that you're speaking to. Correct. Okay, cool. All right. What do we do about, um, well, this, this is kind of a, an elongated question. So there's, there's a, a couple of parts to this. The first is what I think we're getting a little bit confused about what cross-listing means. And then what do we do about independent studies? So let's let's deal first of all with cross-listing. What does, in your world, what does cross-listing mean? Cross-listing is, um, it's a mechanism that our office uses um, in conjunction with the academic units to basically indicate that two sections are um, essentially the same section. So, but they may be, they may have different prefixes, like it may be a political science uh, uh, prefix, and there also may be a humanities prefix offering, but the course is the same. It's the same course. Um, it's essentially 
um, the same section, so to speak. Same um, content, same students. One student may be in the in one in one class, the other student may be in the other class, but they're all put together in this one classroom. Correct. And the other instance is where um, you may have a graduate course um, that's also cross-listed with an undergraduate course. Um, the, the graduate uh, enrollees may have slightly different requirements, but it's taught by the same faculty member, often the same uh, maybe hybrid, face-to-face, -face, whatever. It's essentially considered the same course. So the faculty is going to be the two sections are going to be cross-listed and the faculty will be is essentially considered to be teaching that both those sections would be considered one course load. Got it. OK, so let's. The, there's a difference then in in Canvas that I think gets us a little bit confused. This is Canvas language, by the way. It's not something that that we've come up with. Canvas calls cross-listing something a little bit different, although it would work for what you're describing. Uh, but they're also, they're also given the ability to combine courses of the same prefix into one single uh, section. What are the, from your perspective, what's the, the warning signs that should be there for us? One component of FERPA is that's very clear is that it goes back to the student schedule. And so students in separate CRNs or separate sections, if those if they're not cross-listed, th those students, they can't be commingled. So a student in section A of intro psychology cannot know or see the name of or see uh, any other information about a student that may be in section B. So there can't be any commingling of different section of different sections because that is a FERPA violation in regards to non-directory information, specifically the student schedule. Yeah, and, and then you you're also that other the, the students are then able to see even directory information from Canvas viewpoint, because they can see their use, their name, you can see your email, you can see that they're in section B and not section A, you can see those things if they're intermingled together. Yeah, and even you say directory information, the name you know is directory information, but what what's non-directory information is that enrollment status in that other section. Right. Right. So that that cannot happen. Okay, so in in Canvas, again, we have the ability to put these courses together. Mm -hmm. um, so when we do that, when we're requested to do that, we we need to make absolutely certain that those students cannot see students in the other section. Yeah, that's correct. So I know that there's um, mechanisms within Canvas. Right. where you can create a common course shell or whatever terminology you want to use. And, and that's fine, but we have to absolutely be sure in the discussion boards, whatever it may be, that a student in one section can't see students in, in another section. Yeah. Right. 
And I understand the reason why faculty find that a, a very valuable tool. Absolutely. Uh, don't I have to repeat <laughs> building that course over and over again? And I've, I've done this before myself where I've updated in one section and forgot to update it in the, in the other section. So then, you know, we have problems there. So I understand the reason here. We just need to make sure that that when we make this uh, common shell, that the students in either section can't see each other. Scott, what happens, or we, we get this on occasion where faculty will ask us, Center for Digital Instruction or CDI, we, we get asked to put a student in a, in a section that they're not registered for. Is that a FERPA violation? Yes. Um, again, because that student, if they're not registered for that section in Banner, that that's absolutely a FERPA violation. Okay. So the the fix for that is what? Well, I, it depends on the specific situation, I guess. Um, you know, if that student's actually doing. Uh, you know, an independent study or whatever it may be, that student needs to be accommodated in some other fashion. Um, it all comes back to you can't commingle sections if they're not cross-listed in banner. And if a, a regular section is not going to be cross-listed, generally speaking, to the best of my knowledge, with like an independent study, let's say, um, because the faculty compensation and the, the faculty load, I don't think allows those to be cross-listed. Okay. All right. So the 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 general rule then would be. If you want a student in a section for which they're not registered for, it needs to go through the registrar's office. Yes, it need the student need, either needs to be registered for that section, or it needs to go through us so we can figure out a way to resolve it either with a cross listing or some other method. Right. The student should not just be added into a Canvas section that they're not registered for in Banner. Perfect. Okay. Excellent. Okay, now you've you've raised up all sorts of, of questions for us, and some of these we're we're going to allow people to to send us questions, and we'll pass those through to you. But there is another question that I think comes up that that deals with course content. Um, sometimes faculty will record. Uh, a lecture or record a whole class se uh, session. So eight o'clock in the morning from eight until 915, 930, whatever those class periods are. They'll just let the recording run and then they post it online. Is that material reusable in a future class? It's only reusable if um, there's no personally identifiable information that, that, that's been recorded. So if any student um, images, student names, um, et cetera, 
are part of that recording, it could not be reused. It could only be posted and used by that specific section. Uh, does personal identifiable information include voice? Um, I think it's probably challenging to set to have a voice without somehow, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, without somehow having the, the name attached to it. Um, so my recommendation would be that if you're going to record um, material for a course, that you record it separately, th that lecture piece separately, um, and then use it in each of your courses. But or if you're going to record it, make sure that students cannot, that their uh, images, names, all that is locked down and does not appear. What we're not saying here is that, that you, you cannot um, record a course lecture and then post it for that class, correct? Correct. So yes. that they can absolutely and review it. Yeah, you can absolutely record the lecture and any interactions in the course. You can record that and post it for that specific section. Absolutely. One other question about that then. So let's say that I'm, I'm the professor. I record a full hour and a half lecture, and then I take the time to go through it and edit out any other kind of voice, video, anything except for just what the lecture is is would that be permissible that would yes um you just want to be very very cautious that you have edited out um any information that would tie it to that specific section via ferpa um protected information excellent all right so so let's let's recap and let's see if i if i have it right First of all, this is a, a federal requirement. It is linked to financial aid, at least partially. Uh, it is dealing with the privacy of the student's um, personal information, as well as, I think I'm missing something there. Uh, well, there's right and... It, there's, it's about the student rights to review their educational record and protecting the privacy of that educational record. Right. Okay. So if if we have that in our mind that, that we're about protecting the student's personal information, anything about a, an individual student, that all the rest of it should pretty much fall into place, correct? Correct. So... So we're not going to be posting videos that would have a student in it, um, which reminds me. So what if, what if can a student huh, can a faculty member require a student to create a video, and then then let's say that that video was so great, so wonderful that that faculty person wanted to use it in a subsequent class? Would that be permissible or how could they go about it being permissible? They simply would need to get written permission from the student. Excellent. All right. So even though that without the written permission of the, of the student, that would be a FERPA violation with the written permission, then it's it's not. 
if it has any PII, personally identifiable information in the video, it would be a violation if they did not get permission from the student. So anytime personal information of the student gets released, it needs to have written permission from that student to let that information out, whether it is for a recommendation, um, except for in the case of a, a conversation with a fellow student who share a fellow faculty member who shares that educational uh, interaction with the student. Correct. Otherwise, it's kept um, sacred to that student. Correct. Excellent. Okay. Have I missed anything? Um, the only, again, the, I think the best rule of thumb is when in doubt, don't give out a student's information to anybody but that student. That, uh, that's, that's a really good. good rule of thumb. And um, if there's any questions or any doubt, contact the registrar's office. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I think that's that's the best. That's the best. Um, result anyway. If you have a question, just contact you, the registrar's office. And by the way, good good word from others that I've talked to. Your responsiveness has been really good. Uh, we've had people that have contacted us. We've turned it over to you, and your response to them has been as close to immediate as it could possibly be. So that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah, you, you're doing a great job with that. All right. Thank you, uh, Scott. I appreciate your, your knowledge, your help with this. This is not the most exciting topic ever. No. Uh, but it will help us protect the student, and that's, that's what we need to be about. And it may not be the most exciting topic. It's a really important topic, and especially um, with uh, you know, having online courses, hybrid courses, traditional face-to-face -face courses, it's really important that we just keep FERPA uh, in our thoughts as we share information these days. Thank you for joining me today on this excursion into the Federal Education Rights and Privacy Act. Thanks to Scott for his good wisdom in helping us understand what can be a fairly tricky subject. It sometimes gets a little gray or maybe a little difficult to wrap our heads around. And if you find yourself in that kind of an instance, go to your FERPA administrator and explain the situation. I'm sure they will do their best to help you parse the best way to approach your situation. I have done that a number of times with Scott. And I do appreciate Scott's help today, and I trust this has been a benefit to you. So on behalf of the CDI team, thanks for listening, and I hope you'll continue with us on this journey as we seek to bring the Lasallian way online.